This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All statements and opinions expressed by guests of the Adult in the Room podcast are strictly their own and do not necessarily reflect the beliefs or opinions of the host, producers, or advertisers. All interviews are presented in their most complete possible form in the interests of free speech. No statements should be interpreted as financial, legal, or medical advice. Listener and viewer discretion are strongly advised. It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Hi, Victoria Taft here with a special edition of the Adult in the Room podcast. And I have a special guest today, Todd Benzman. Uh, now, Todd Benzman may be the most authoritative person on what I have been calling an invasion at the border, at the southern border. Now, some people may take issue with that. But when you have that many people, as we used to say, young men of fighting age coming over a border, there's usually guns and other things attached. And so that's why I call it an invasion. Todd Benzman has different ideas, and he is the most authoritative and probably the best able to express and explain what has gone on at the border. He has put his professional credentials as a senior fellow for the Center for Immigration Studies and his past work in law enforcement in Texas into service to bring the most detailed, definitive work on what the hell's going on at the border, how we got here and why. And the outcome is his new book, Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the greatest border crisis in U.S. history. And I don't care what political party you belong to, what side of the aisle you're on, uh, if you're some sort of ideologue, there's nobody who can disagree with this. It is the greatest border crisis in U.S. history. Thank you very much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. Uh, your work continues right up until the moment you and I got on the connection today. What are you working on today? Well, actually, today uh, has been a lot of media uh, about the book. So um, I've just Good. been um, going from one to the other, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. Uh, you know, the book, well, let me just put it this way. There ought to be competition for a book like this from <laughs> 10 other authors, uh, but mine's the only one uh, about this greatest mass migration crisis in American history. Uh, truly a historic event, but uh, one can hope that other authors will come and build on what I've uh, laid down here. Uh, just by the nonpartisan numbers, uh, you know, we're looking at four and a half million apprehensions at the southern border in 24 months, uh, and another million and a half uh, not apprehensions, non-apprehensions called gotaways. Uh, so, I mean, you know, listen, it's a very, very busy, collapsed, uh, chaotic, schizophrenic border down there and has been for two years straight. And we're in our third year. You know, I've always wondered about the gotaway numbers. How do they know how many people have gotten away? They really don't. It's an unknowable figure, isn't it? 
yeah, it's it's really an unscientific. It's a terrible number uh, because, for one <laughs> thing, in order to to count, uh, you know, anyone as a gotaway, you have to have like uh, some footprints. It's a border patrol agent to see footprints in the sand and know that nobody got caught, or there has to be a drone that see mm. it, sees it, or a helicopter or something, a camera. Uh, and very often there's nobody to see it, especially nowadays. So I think that the number a million and a half is a vast, dramatic undercount. It's probably three times that number. But, you know, yeah. who knows? Right. Nobody's paying attention. Uh, there's been inattention to the border. And I think it's by design. Yes. And I think you believe that as well. Tell me a little bit how how your experience in the Texas law enforcement, as well as your uh, research experience, helped you write this book. And I think people will be interested in knowing what you bring to the table. Sure. Well, uh, like I like to tell people I am a recovering journalist. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter for 23 years, uh, full career, and um, mostly at you know, major, you know, mainstream newspapers, the Dallas Morning News for 10 years, and uh, CBS and Hearst. Uh, and then I uh, left the business to go into uh, law enforcement intelligence in 2009 in for the Texas Department of Public Safety uh, in Austin, Texas at the headquarters um, for the, the state police. Uh, and I worked in intelligence for nine years, nine more years. What did you do? Uh, it, uh, I ran all of our counterterrorism operations wow. uh, for the state for the state in um, collaboration with the FBI and all of our federal partners uh, in what they call it a fusion center. So we're all together right. in one place. And, you know, we have lots of uh, we had lots and lots of intelligence that everybody else needed and wanted and um, were able to um, to generate um material and analysis that everybody needed. So um, that's what my team did. And you've done the same thing for the border crisis. Why is this happening? Well, it's it's actually not as complicated as they try to make it out to be. This is not a big complicated thing. Uh, you know, I spend most of my time uh, reporting for this book with the immigrants. Uh, to me, they are the primary source. They are the only source. Mm -hmm. uh, the main source. I mean, there's Border Patrol and the ranchers and the people that live down there on both sides, Mexican law enforcement, et cetera. But, but you know, what they will tell you if you ever spend any time with them is that we are coming now because they open the door. They're being nice to us. They're helping us. They're not deporting us. Mm. Uh, and so they are willing under those conditions to spend $10,000 or $5,000 for smuggling. Uh, that's what it costs to, to mm. travel to and cross the border. And you want to know before you borrow that kind of money or lay that kind of, kind of money down that you're going to get in. And this administration has pursued policies that guaranteed that millions got in. We're going to get in. They knew in advance that they were going to get in, and they're responding to policies, and they'll tell you. Immigrants are smart people. I spent a lot of time with them. They may not be, by and large, formally oh, educated. Oh, they're smart educated. enough to get here? 
Oh, no, they're smart enough to get from point A to point B. They know the angles to work. These are not stupid people. That's right. They're they're just like you and me. I mean, working the angles and trying to figure out how to uh, get a lag up in life. And sure, I can't really blame I can't really blame them for uh, making an effort or a lot of them. I, I kind of do. I have a tension about that. I like to think that I would never break somebody else's laws and be mm-hmm. all disrespectful and game their system and lie. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's human nature maybe for a lot of people to just come in through an unopened back gate. And that's what they're doing. So the idea of people being who are bankrolling their own escape to another country, uh, that's not as simple. That's it's 10 grand. Five to 10 grand is a lot of money to make for a person in Mexico or anywhere else in the triangle countries or what have you. Uh, that's that's not nothing. And oh, oftentimes they will become. Be- yeah. And they'll become beholden to the cartels for getting them over, which, of course, then increases the amount of people being abused and, uh, you know, human trafficking. It's a it's a slow it's not even a slow motion anymore. It's a tragedy. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime fortune. I mean, you are not going to lay down that kind of money unless you really know you're going to get in. And they know that they're going to get in. The policies are to let them in. That's the official government policy, safe, orderly, and humane migration over the southern borders, the official policy of this presidency. Now, I always ask, you know, where did you get the money? It's one of my favorite questions, and I'll tell you what the answer is most of the time. Most of the time, uh, relatives already inside the United States were willing to front the bill. So there are people inside the United States, relatives, friends, whatever, who are sending the money knowing that it's going to be used for illegal purchase of uh, smuggling services. There is no um, real uh, law enforcement crackdown on those people for doing it. Uh, I think there should be. That's a conspiracy, isn't it? Well, I mean, if you're sending money for uh, illegal smuggling over our border, you can be charged for that for sure. But nobody ever is. They need to start charging for that. But um, they also will borrow money from the village. Uh, Everybody in the village will pool up and they'll maybe sell a piece of land or whatever. They'll raise the money uh, if they know they're going to get in and to stay in and pay everybody back with interest, pay the relatives back with interest and then keep earning multiple times the amount of that smuggling money. Uh, and do they sometimes become beholden to a criminal organization? That that does happen. We do hear. Uh, I don't think it's as widespread as a lot of people think it is. Oh, interesting. It's just like, you know, my mom in Florida sent me the money. You know, I mean, I get that all. I get that more than anything else. My brother, mm-hmm. he's been there for five years. He He, you know, got the money for me. Yeah, the brother who's the gray man in Orlando, where you'll never be able to track him. Uh, So very interesting. So they pool the money, they come over. And in some areas, you don't depend on the cartel to bring you into the United States. But let's say it's the cartel. You got 10 grand. You're going to pay him off. How does that work? Well, it depends on where you go uh, and where you start. Um, For example, um, I've interviewed uh, runners but we call runners the ones that want to get to, to become gotaways. Uh, 
who were sold all-inclusive packages in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras by cartel salesmen who just go down there and say, I can get you to Interstate 10 uh, in Texas uh, for $10,000. They have to pay that money right then on the spot. And when they wow. pay that money up front, uh, the cartels, that, that, the way I understand it is they, they just don't want to mess with your collection problem. They don't want to do the collection stuff. They just want the cash up front. So most of them pay the cash up front. They demand it and they pay it up front. And then uh, they'll get a laminated sheet that tells them exactly where to go, which buses to catch, uh, how to get to a certain town on the border. And then they get themselves there and then call this phone number. They call the phone number and the cartel comes and picks them up. Uh, so that's one way. Uh, and then carries them over and gets them through because it's good for business if they get through and mm -hmm. send selfies home. Nothing is better for business than the selfies, the success, the successful crossing, right? Um, so they do have an interest in making sure that they get over, but it's by all means not guaranteed. Um, and then there are other places on the border where uh, you pay your money to uh, like a cartel over the, the counter and you get a wristband uh, like you would get at a water park. And, uh, you know, that's still going on everywhere on the border. You find they, they all cross the boat, comes in and man, woman and infant have the mm. little wristbands that they paid that shows that they paid their <sighs> fee they could get right on the they could get right on the raft and they get they cross over so there's like inventory control there's so many coming through that's 2500 bucks a pop for a typical central american chinese will pay uh 8 or 9000 uh mauritanians and africans might pay up there too so there's a sliding scale depending on where you're from. Middle Easterners, really? they'll pay 10000 Yes. And also there are packages. Uh, remember Title... <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not That's kidding hilarious. You. I mean, they're, they're title... business persons. I mean, I get it. But it's, it's Title 42, a... uh, where they, people were getting pushed back over and over again. Mm -hmm. So they started selling, um, you know, three attempts for, you know, $6,000. And if you get pushed back, one will take you again. If you get pushed back a second, we'll take you again. If you get pat a third time, we're not taking you again. You got to pay you. for another. Yeah. You got to pay for another package. All kinds of creative financing and packaging going on. Uh, lots and lots are um, showing up in like Venezuelans and Cubans and um, Nicaraguans will buy packages in their countries or on the way that bring them to Cancun. Uh, where they'll stay in a hotel, a five-star hotel for a few days and re relax. And then it's time to get on the bus. We'll take you over across and, you know. Mm -hmm. Why is the Biden administration allowing this to happen? Yeah, I get asked that all the time. Um, sure you I do. Believe, I believe that the Biden administration has beholden itself to a very influential, a newly ascendant, far, far left wing of the Democratic Party coalition. Think uh, Bernie Sanders. They grew in authority and voting power uh, for the primaries when there was a, a cast of 15 candidates. And whoever got the most of that block was going to win. Uh, and 
um, the Biden people got that voting block. And remember, Bernie Sanders even endorsed Biden, said he's going to be the guy. And, you know, he owed him. So he gave him power. Those people came in and got power over the immigration portfolio and a bunch of other stuff, too. But they got power over the immigration authority, uh, portfolio and they have an ideology that holds that, you know, we're all a borderless land uh, world. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, anybody should be it's a human right to be able to go where you want to go when you want to go. And that it's um, cruel and inhumane and racist to uh, mm -hmm. deport and, you know, to just have immigration enforcement of your laws. And they believe this. It's an ideology. Uh, I write in my book, Overrun, a whole chapter about where they come from and who they are and what their ideology mm -hmm. is. And the name of that chapter is The New Theologians, because they are yes. just like, they're just like, uh, you know, church goers and a believer in a cult. They're zealots. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas is one of them, right? Yes. He's the chief theologian. He's the, <laughs> the, the, the leading cleric. He's the mullah of this whole thing. Uh, and he comes from where they come from, which is the um, this sort of constellation of NGOs that that are that do migrant resettlement and advocacy uh, that are that are behind this, and the reason that those people are pro borders, pro pro uh, or anti borders, is because uh, the more immigration, the more money they make. Uh, I'm an old cynic, a journalist. I'm a cynic. I'm sorry. Uh, this is always going to be about money in the end, and I think this one is about money in the end. Uh, they are getting hundreds of millions of dollars in federal contracts to help out with this crisis that was completely manufactured from scratch and was totally unnecessary. Uh, but nobody was making money over there during the Trump years. Now they're all cashing in in a huge way. Mark my words, when Mayorkas finally leaves office, whether he's impeached or resigns or just his term comes to an end, he will end up with a major job as an executive for one of these uh, organizations. The NGOs working with these organizations, uh, or the government rather, they, uh, my, both my kids have worked for NGOs and, and I've been watching the NGO thing for quite some time. And I believe that if people are working and get government contracts, they ought to be held to the same standard that anyone working for the federal government is, which is to say they need to be held to the standard of the Logan Act and not uh, use their positions of authority and largesse to do any politicking on the part of the taxpayers. Does that make any sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, you could argue that uh, these are conflicts of interest, uh, but I mean, really, what this reminds me of is, you know, any any other industry that that has lobbying arms that lobby Congress and White House officials for tweaks and policies, tweaks in policies, laws, legislation, regulations that benefit them and their industry. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, there there have been rules where, you know, you have to wait a year or two before you can go work for one of them that you helped when you were in government so that it reduces the quid pro quo. But, you know, a lot of that stuff, nobody pays attention in this 
uh, context of the immigration. Nobody thinks of these immigrant advocacy organizations as businesses. And they are. <laughs> I mean, I think Very we've much. seen, I, I, I believe, I, I believe that a lot of people are beginning to see, is this a, I mean, I hate to bring up the boogeyman, but I've found out that George Soros, of course, over the years has been responsible for many things, seed money for different kinds of NGOs uh, that do his bidding, his political bidding and that sort of thing. Is there any tentacles to him? Just curious. Yes, of course. Talk. I mean, well, <laughs> listen, there. The, he has organizations that are pro uh, their advocacy uh, organizations for immigrants, but so do a whole lot of other organizations, the Carnegie Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, really, the, my book lays a whole bunch of them out. It's not just one guy. It's right. There's right. It said a whole constellation of liberal, uh, far left, uh, very wealthy and mm -hmm. very well endowed financially uh, organizations that 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 provide the funding, uh, the engine for all of this ideology, uh, for all of this, and uh, most of the uh, immigration think tanks are on the uh, the liberal side uh, that are that that advocate for openness and liberal board for asylum. We all need to provide mm -hmm. asylum to everyone and. It's it, in this and you're is a racist business. if you don't like it, and uh, the the asylum issue. You think that that is primarily where the problem lies? That we could actually have more uh, a, a better effect if we address that issue. Correct. It, it's it's the central issue. It is the central driving force behind mass migration crises, uh, and the reason is because. The law, the, which was um, enacted in about 1980 based on some international agreements without going into the detail of that, but it 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 was set up for, you know, think of the uh, Vietnamese boat people fleeing communist re-education, like real yeah. government persecution, you know, the North Koreans fleeing their gulags, uh, you know, Jews fleeing you know, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But what it was never intended for is yam farmers from Honduras, uh, <laughs> people that, um, you know, had a bad coffee picking uh, season or whatever, you know, that are just poor. And, you know, heart goes out to them. I'm, I'm not, you know, I mean, I, I, can, I can understand wanting to better yourself, but, but the asylum law is not for you. It's not for them, but it is being used by all of them. Because of the way it's written, you could just come in and say, "I declare asylum. I'm afraid to go back. Don't deport me." Right. And it's a, it's a, and you get into the United States, and once you're in, you disappear. It doesn't matter whether you win; you just get to disappear. And that's the end. That is the sole objective of most of them in using the asylum law. They don't want asylum. They don't care about asylum. They don't know what it is. They don't know anything about it. They And yeah, I talked to them about it. Mm -hmm. um, but what they do know about it is that it gets them in if they say the magic words. Um, Donald Trump understood and his administration understood how it was being abused in that way. And he took the incentive out of it. He 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 cut he cut the incentive right out of it by making people stay in Mexico 
for the duration of their claim. Mm-hmm. And once he started doing that, I went down there. I interviewed them all. I'm like, uh, you know, there were 60, 70,000 of them down there that were pushed back. I'm like, hey, what are you going to do now? Yeah. I'm going home. I'm going huh. home. When am I, you know, I didn't come here for this. I didn't come here to wait here in Mexico. Asylum, shma, asylum, you know? Yeah. Uh, the Haitians. So they, they were going home. Uh, the Haitians were not even from Haiti. They were they were staying in Chile and Brazil uh, quite comfortably with uh, work authorization and residency and everything else in those countries. And they waited Trump out in those places. And then the door was open and they rushed forth. They went for it, of course. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That is probably the biggest scandal, though. There's a, there's a lot of political intrigue playing into that. Can you share a little bit of it? I mean, I urge everyone to get your book, Overrun. It's just a eye-popping uh, book, and uh, at least the parts that I I've do. read of it. And I, and I will, you know, it's like one of those things where, yeah, sure, talk show hosts say, don't get a chance to read all of them. I'm reading every word of this because it is oh, the most you. authoritative book on this and real life case studies, actual speaking to people. You've spoken with more. You've spoken with literally hundreds of people. Hundreds, uh, hundreds. Over yes. the years. And you've and you've actually worked in the trenches there. This is not just a place where you parachute in. You actually spend time there. Um, and so time, yes. that 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 Haiti story, <laughs> that blew my mind. That just blew uh, my mind. Are you you're How talking we about the, the, the Del uh, well the Del Rio migrant camp uh, or the Del Rio uh, going into Haiti, screwing up their election, making yeah, so, a deal with the devil. I mean, my God, it's awful. Right. So this is that was a fascinating. If anybody remembers it, it was international news for about a week uh, because um, the about seventeen thousand Haitians all of a sudden crowded almost overnight into this fetid, stinking migrant camp under the bridge at Del Rio, Texas, with more mm-hmm. and more and more pouring in all the, all the time. And they realized that this was an eyesore, a political eyesore. They had to get rid of this right away. And they went Trumpian to get rid of this thing. Um, what I mean by that is they decided to start flying Haitians all the way back actually to Haiti, uh, in deportations. Uh, and the reason they did that is because they understood that once everybody in the camp got wind that they weren't being let in to America, they were being, they were ending up back on the tarmac in the hated Haiti. Uh, they ran south. They fled mm. the camp. Uh, and those that didn't flee the camp ended up back in Haiti. A lot of them, some of them did get in, but it was too great a risk to your money. Uh, that you spent all this money and now you're going to not only get, they weren't even sending you back to Chile where you've been living for five years. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst possible outcome. So they were able to liquidate the camp very quickly. But in order to deport by air, 
they had to have the Haitian leader agree to accept them at the airport in Port-au-Prince. And they cut a deal with the devil for that. The Haitians were two months away from having their first uh, national elections to elect a parliament. And then they were going to have another election uh, a couple months later to elect a president. And the deal that they cut was no elections and you get to be the dictator if you just take all these Haitians from the Del Rio camp. So Haiti got screwed out of its democracy for the Biden administration to not look so bad in the midterm elections. And that is a true story. That, nobody, I mean, I've never heard that until you talked about right. it. It's in your book. Right. And that it's, came from the um, American ambassador uh, who lived this in Haiti and resigned over it. And he was a Biden appointee. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. he was no enemy of the Biden uh, administration, and he laid this whole thing out. He said, you know, they killed the elections and installed a dictator, and I couldn't take it. I quit. Yeah. I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Somebody with ethics. Wow. What's that like? I mean, there's probably so many people with too few ethics involved in this charade. You cannot tell me that the uh, having a no border is good for a country or anyone. I mean, you're fleeing your supposed awful country, your asshole country, as Trump put it. And then you come to America where there are no more borders. I mean, uh, and then you come to America and we have to pay for free stuff for you. How long can that last? Well, it, apparently as long as we're willing to deficit spend on it, uh, which seems to be forever. Um, we have a lengthening Far list. China to do that. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, they're buying our debt. But um, you have um, a lengthening list of American cities that are declaring emergencies uh, because so many are coming and they don't know what to do with them. They can, there's no housing, there's no food, there's sh so they have to like bring, uh, you know, this is what, this is the classic um, unfunded burden Mm -hmm. uh, for these cities. And what they're doing is declaring emergencies and demanding federal bailouts. New York just asked for $27 million, billion, with a B, uh, dollars for wow. its uh, migrants that are coming there. Why are they going to New York? It's not because Greg Abbott of Texas shipped them there or uh, DeSantis in Florida you know, put them on buses. It's because the New Yorkers put them up in five-star hotels. And gave them everything for months, food, shelter, the best care, everything they could ever want for months. They're sending selfies down the trail saying, wow, look at look, look at where I am. Um, and so everybody's coming to New York. Of course, you're wow. they're giving them everything. So they're coming for, for this stuff. And um, now the uh, mayor of New York is demanding. Uh, billions of dollars in federal uh, bailout money and Denver and Chicago and Washington, D.C. And I'll dare say there are probably many more cities that nobody's covering or quietly asking for bailout mm. money. So I, it's going to be a deficit spending. We're going to be carrying these people, millions of people, for years. Yeah, Post-pandemic, and we found out where people were fleeing from 
and they're fleeing from New York, they're fleeing from California, they're fleeing from other places and going to places like Texas and Florida. And what that means is when you have all these illegal aliens coming over, a term of art, by the way, so if anyone's offended, tough toenails, um, and coming into certain areas, they get another, they're represented in Congress because they count in the census. So to the extent that we are counting illegal aliens in the census, I mean, this actually waters down our personal votes and our representation. This is a slow moving election fraud. That's what this is. Comment? Well, you're certainly right about the impact on the census. Uh, This, you know, they don't they don't count just citizens. They count people living in an area. And they base, you know, decisions about whether to create new congressional districts, et cetera, uh, on those population tallies. And uh, so, you know, in blue areas, uh, that's probably going to translate into uh, blue seats, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, they're be losing them right and left. And here they go. And here they're bringing in people and they get representation. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I mean, it's just really, I mean, that's just, that's the end game, isn't it? I I I don't know if it's I don't know if I could bestow that level of um of coordinated strategizing uh for long term on you know the Democratic Party but it it certainly is a cherry on top. So we'll put put it that way. Uh it's a cherry on top and I think that that you know one of the major um motivating factors uh, about uh, giving them that power, that far left, that power is that they're needed, that sliver is needed in the coalition for tight elections. All, all of our elections are just, they come down to the wire. Mm-hmm. And it's given that Bernie Sanders kind of progressive left a lot of uh, pull, um, kind of like, you know, uh, I don't know, I think about the Israeli uh, parliament and or the Knesset, rather, and how they all have to kind of agree in a coalition to on who the prime minister is going to be. Mm-hmm. And there's these tiny little right-wing parties that would never have any power otherwise. All of a sudden, they're the kingmakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how I look at the Bernie Sanders left right now in this country. Uh, they became kingmakers in 2020, mm-hmm. and I think they still are. How do you get this many people, and I would love to hear your estimate on how many millions have come over in the last couple of years. How many, how many people do we have to integrate into our society? Um, can you do it? And I just don't see a country moving forward unless you can do that. Um, but for example, your, your story out of the Cleveland Independent School District in Texas was a tragic eye-opener once again, you go, you talk to the people, you're literally in the schools, you talk to the, the suits as well as the little guys um, and the guys in the, the diner. It's, you, you, we cannot live in a country. This is unsustainable by having this kind of an invasion. Well, I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely pa- painful <clears throat> for communities. They're suffering in silence right now because but I, I know they're suffering. I know there's a lot of suffering. They're not allowed to say anything uh, about what's happening to them, there or they won't, uh, because they risk offending the that Bernie Sanders left or the woke mob or something like that. 
But, you know, you mentioned the, the Cleveland, Texas Independent School District, not to be confused with Cleveland, Ohio. Texas has a lot of names of Midwestern cities. It's funny. Uh, there's a Dayton right next door uh, to Cleveland <laughs> over there. Um, uh, and they say it has nothing to do with Ohio. It's just like there was some guy named Dayton uh, back in the old days. But anyway, um, but that's what happened is, you know, uh, 75,000, 100,000 illegal immigrants descended on this rural, uh, close-knit community in East Texas, forested, uh, beautiful uh, land. Um, and all of a sudden, in three or four years, uh, you know, they had changed the face of the school district. And the voters were being asked to approve one bond election after another, after <laughs> another, every year, even this year, last year, the year before, next year, they've got that one. I mean, they cannot possibly, and the tax rates uh, going up and up, and they had to have they have to hire ESL teachers, English as a second language. They've got all these uh, kids in there that didn't even go to school back in wherever they're from, uh, that now they're in there, they can't read or write or even speak English, and I mean, or speak just Spanish. These, the, or right? anything, or these <laughs> terrible problems in the Cleveland Independent School District that I um, uh, that I report on in the book, in the final chapter. What's happening in Cleveland Independent School District, I believe, is happening across America right now. Uh, and if you don't believe me, uh, if you're listening to this in whatever school district you are, go to Google and Google portable classrooms and the name of your school district and see what pops. Wow. Uh, That's just a great Google idea. portable classrooms and you'll see they're having to buy them. Uh, and you can't buy those things unless you have bond election money to do it. Kind of makes you wonder if FEMA shouldn't come in with her infamous trailers. I mean, it's a national, it's a national emergency, right? I think FEMA is already involved in this thing. Of course. <laughs> Yeah, are, I'm pretty sure. I, the I hate to sound in. dumb asking that. I mean, are they the at the FEMA's border in. where everybody's? Yeah, FEMA's in. Oh, my God. Well, uh, so, but they're not in particular cities that are oh, yeah, I'm not, putting I, up I with these people. Exactly what they're doing, but uh, they're on this border issue. Uh, and I think they're, they may be helping to build uh, soft-sided uh, shelters and facilities and providing infrastructure for housing, uh, there's a lot of construction going on on the southern border right now uh, for you know expansion of um, shelter space and capacity all along the Texas side of the border and elsewhere too. But it's all opaque. You can't figure out which agencies are paying how much and for what. Uh, it's all a big secret. And you try like to go black... onto one of those things, and they're they've got private security that chase you out of there. It's a black. It's a black box uh, budget. Uh, it's Pretty you might much. as well just you know. So, one of the things that has always amused me, and a very rueful amusement, if you will, is the fact that it's a environmental disaster at the border, and these people are so called progressives that I assume hold the idea that we should take care of the earth, but they're not doing that at all. They're actually trampling over the border that and i'd also like to know who's actually controlling the border i mean it gets to the point where you wonder if it's the cartels actually controlling it and not anyone who's a good guy in the united states government i use that loosely 
let me let me address the first thing. So you know, environmental um, degradation. Uh, most definitely, it's awful. What's I mean, you should see with the trash, the pounds and you know tonnage of trash. Uh, but yeah, I'll go back to the Cleveland in Texas Independent School District, and that region was um, has always been known as being you know famous for its thick forests. I mean, really, you know, vast tracts of forest land. Uh, and it has been uh, tens of thousands of acres completely clear cut to make way. And I mean, swamps filled in, ponds filled in, bird sanctuaries just just mowed down uh, for thousands and thousands of acres. It's just heart wrenching to drive through it. I've, I've, I've you know, there's just the, um, you know, trees just stacked to the to the sky. Uh, in these areas, um, clear cut to make way for these, you know, ramshackle tar and paper, uh, you know, canvas huts uh, that they're living in or, you know, trailers and um, just kind of it's a colonia out there. And mm -hmm. the degradation was vast and widespread. Uh, the wildlife just decimated for just miles and miles and miles. The flooding of sewage down into um, waterways, into bios, in the bayous, and um, down into the Gulf of Mexico is stunning. Uh, you should hear the stories about that. And it's all illegal immigration in that in that region. How and can nobody they get cares. Around? I don't see the Sierra Club going in there right. uh, complaining about all the tree, uh, the clear cutting. It's another example of intersectionality and rock, paper, scissors, I suppose. Um, if you, you know, just who counts more? Who who should benefit? And um, to the detriment of the people of the United States who came here legally or are here, born here. My son-in-law's yeah. from Mexico. And uh, he came here legally, got his papers, and then got his U.S. citizenship. It wasn't that hard. I mean, it was... It was a pain in the ass for, you know, a few years because, uh, but, you know, he did what he had to do. College graduate, you, you, he had, he's a triple threat. He speaks Spanish, double E, and college grad, and, and uh, you know, in the United States. He's a dream. He's a dream candidate for a job. Um, and yet he still has to compete with some people who want to bring down the wages that he earns uh, because he is, uh, you know, he's in the lot. He's Mexican, you know, and it's just so aggravating that this is not just and this is not just uh he's you know being his uh ox is being gored it's it's uh people who earn a lot less money than he does for example blacks and latinos in this country who don't have a high school diploma for example and they have to duke it out with people who came here illegally i mean it's just yeah. wrong it's just who yeah. I mean, who's who's on our side anymore? I mean, I hate to sound hysterical about it. I sort of pride myself on not doing that anymore. But this is this is a slow moving national disaster. That is it's a little it reminds me a little like a landslide, you know, a little inch here, inch there. A couple of years go by. It's, a, you know, oh, gosh, it's a foot. And then all of a sudden the hill comes down. That's what's happening right now. Yeah. I mean, you can't you can't help but feel uh, just you know, terrible and empathetic about America's, um, you know, African-American communities. Uh, this is just 
devastating, and they don't even know it. They're going to keep voting Democrat, but uh, you you just I mean it's it's like you see the train uh, heading right for them, and they're tied to the track, and you can't mm. do anything about it. Nobody will do anything. And it's really I, I you you provide some insight in the last chapter of your book about the Cleveland Independent School District in Texas, and you say. I think this is what you're saying, that we may never know, really, how many people came in and are impacting because you say the National Center for Education Statistics did provide general indication of where it was happening. This is the immigration, this after and after Trump's 2019 immigrant family crisis, but had not updated its reporting in 2022. The center tracked English learner enrollments from 2010 through the fall of 2019, by which time the bulk of nearly one million family members that included kids that already crossed the border that crisis year were in the country, which is to say that they're going to lump all these years together and it's going to look like, oh, it's no big deal. See, Biden was that much, wasn't that much worse than Trump. Uh, you know, I believe that that's, you know, what the, what's going to happen there. Am I wrong? No, you're right. I mean, of course, uh, people will play with those numbers. But, you know, we have to remember that uh, this this particular mass migration crisis is far bigger than the one that happened briefly under Donald Trump. That was like we wish we could go back to those those days at the time. I mean, everybody was pulling their hair out. Oh, my God, look what Trump did. Uh, but this thing is, you know, twice as big as that. And and. Uh, three times, four times as long, and it's still going on. Uh, and that also the like a key characteristic of this are families with children, because they set it up policy wise so that if you had a child, you got in. So everybody mm -hmm. was bringing a ch a child, and if you were pregnant, <laughs> seven months pregnant, you got in. They let you in. So that's who came. Uh, and so that is the characteristic of this. And that's why I added the um, case study about the school district, because that's where most Americans are going to are already. I mean, they're not going to feel it. They're in it. They're in it big time right now. Mm -hmm. um, and they may not even know about it uh, because it's funny if you do do the portable classroom trick. Uh, Google trick. I think it's a great uh, idea. You'll find, uh, yeah, put your school district down portable or some school district that you're interested in portable body, uh, classrooms. And mm -hmm. um, you'll find that the local newspapers won't report why there's yeah. a need for these things. They why? skirt why around it. They do acrobatic yoga to get out of having to say why there's this sudden increase of, you know, 500% increase in, you know, enrollment from one year to the next. You're a classically trained journalist. You went to the University of Missouri, a J school, which is one well, of, the, if not the top journalism school in the country. Um, and why are they doing it? Well, uh, you know, I've said this before, um, you know, why aren't they covering this story? Uh, or, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, like, I'm surprised I don't, I'm not competing with Ted. Why do I have the only book <sighs> yes. out about this incredible story? I mean, if you're a journalist, 
uh, and you care about journalism, I mean, you know, <laughs> journalism second, maybe your country first, but still, like, if you're just a journalist, man, this is the sexiest story in your lifetime. Uh, people coming in, uh, the human drama, uh, cops and robbers, policy, um, impact, long-term change on America, uh, just, I mean, the, the, the crime that's going on, the victimization, the international travel and the adventure. And I mean, I mean, this thing's got everything. And um, my my kind of default on this is that, you know, American journalism has, um, you know, become bifurcated along partisan lines. Yeah. Um, that there's a conservative media that's covering the heck out of this or is trying to. Yep. Well, the the uh, liberal media won't touch this thing because it makes their president look terrible. Mm -hmm. It makes him look terrible. And they don't want to see a Donald Trump make a comeback or something. So yeah, they're stepping made that very on, clear. We're stepping on the story. And I've said this before. I'll say it again. If you're an immigration reporter for a newspaper, this is the biggest story of your career, of your life. Uh, you need to be down there on the ground with the people and reporting the heck out of this thing nonstop uh, to the exclusion of everything else. There's no bigger story in your lifetime than this thing. You say there's hope. Where should I look for it? In the 2024 election, uh, Right now, uh, we're going to just be on a cruise control of massive numbers. By the time we're done, we we may very well have about um, maybe 8 to 10 million new people inside the country that we know of. Uh, remember that Godaway number is a big problem uh, because it, it may be two, three, four times higher. It's certainly not a million and a half. I can tell you that. I'll put a paycheck or three on that. Um, so, uh, you know, when, when the 2024 election, uh, rolls around, maybe people even on the democratic side will start to realize like, this is hurting us terribly. Our, uh, mm -hmm. black communities are unemployed because of it. Our, um, you know, high, our GED holders and high school educated, uh, people can't get jobs. Um, that sort of thing. And uh, maybe they'll, uh, you know, vote this out and be uh, willing to go back to the way the Democratic Party was five years ago, five minutes ago, uh, which which I mean, the Democratic Party, as I write in the book, uh, was never uh, down with these kind of policies. Never. These things were verboten. Uh, no detention, no deportation. I mean, Bill Clinton was tough on border security. It was Barack Obama. And both of those living presidents are are kind of criticizing what's happening here, too. They're kind of mainstream, traditional um, Democrats. And the hope is that the rest of the party will finally kind of follow them back into the middle ground and start enforcing the laws again. I, I noticed that in, oh gosh, over the last 25 years, they've uh, the left has been very adamant about the use of ice on anything. Uh, and I just wonder uh, that um, 
uh, we are we're removing that law enforcement angle from our our arrow, our quiver of arrows. And uh, yeah. I wonder how long it'll take before they get rid of ICE. And uh, so I don't think that the the left has barely been uh, that sanguine about. Uh, how they were doing things before they were actually trying to undermine immigration control far before uh, this invasion here. And um, yeah, I for think 20, it's for 20 years, but unsuccessfully. Yeah. As I point well, out in the book, their own Democrats fended them off. They're crazy ideas. I mean, these are just insane ideas. No, well, you know, no what's gonna, you know, what's going to happen. They're going to they're going to make sure they're going to make citizens out of all these people. Right. That's it. Right. Yeah, I'll look for the big amnesty. I mean, looks the first thing that Joe Biden did when he right out of the gate was he put forth a bill that would have given amnesty to millions and millions of people illegally present. Yeah. Uh, so you know that bill's still sitting at it. It didn't go anywhere because uh, you know even the even you know right-minded Democrats understood that this was a big loser. Yeah, well, you couldn't get the support, and you. The thing is, is that one of the one of the uh, bargaining chips is that well, we need Im we need immigration reform, and their idea of immigration reform is to give everybody amnesty. And I'm sorry, but that just doesn't for me. It's a non-starter. I mean, I have family members who have done it the right way. I would like to see personally. I'd like to see more legal immigration, because we could certainly. But as long as we, as only we can pick and choose the the members of our team, right, uh, that we want in the country, not. Uh, people who've just broken the law to get here. And it's a sad state of affairs. And I'm so glad you wrote your book. The book is Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greater Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. Truer words never spoken. Todd Benzman, thank you so much for coming on the Adult Thanks and the Pod. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed. <laughs>